this message is from Living Rock Church, and we trust you'll be really equipped, envisioned, and encouraged as you listen today. This, this subject of, uh, of covenant that we're looking at together, it's only our second week of considering it, and in the context of our series of Boundary Stones, is um, such an, an incredible thing to consider. And uh, we've, we've been singing about it. That, that song uh, towards the end that we sang about the covenants of God, His enduring love reaching to us, that His covenants will stand. For us to understand that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He expresses everything through covenant. It's the means through which he will fulfill all his purposes in the earth. So the kingdom of God is extending. The kingdom of God represents the purposes of God. God's rule, extending and increasing and filling the earth. In fact, more than the earth, the universe, and more than just until Jesus returns, but forever. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be... No end. I, don't under, I have no idea what that actually means. That's a, a phenomenal statement. But his purposes don't end with the return of Christ. His purposes continue from before all the way through and into eternity. The purposes of God. And in the same way, God's covenant ways of, of relating to us won't end when Jesus returns. Covenant will continue forever. Because God is a covenant-keeping God. His love is everlasting. It's a covenant love. We know, don't we, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, three things last forever. And it's not death, taxes, and something else. It's faith, hope, and love. Covenant love. Once we come into and experience the covenant love of God, there is an infinite amount of his love to experience and encounter. So whatever I'm going to say this morning is just going to scratch the surface or continue to scratch the surface. But David shared last week, and I, I so enjoyed traveling through the, the Old Testament and into the New and considering those seven covenants that God has established. And I'd like to revisit those, hopefully um, build on the foundation of those things. But, you know, it, it's so important that we understand the fullness of the story. Has anybody ever walked into a film halfway through? Everybody's sitting watching a film. Or has anybody ever started watching a series and you kind of, you start, nobody starts a series in season three, episode 15. What's the point? You go back to the beginning and then you faithfully and more and more addictively, depending on what you're watching, catch up because you, you get an understanding of who these characters are, what the story is all about. And you need to go from the beginning to really fully appreciate the fullness of the story. And you know, far too often as as, as believers, yes, of course, the Old Testament is revealed in the New, but we spend too long in the New and don't consider the Old and understand the fullness of the story, of the reasons behind all of these things, the, the plot that develops as we begin to study it from start to finish. It's far richer than if we just dip in where we fancy and the bits that we think are more understandable or more easy to understand. God wants us to understand the fullness of his purposes. My, my nana had a, um, one of those concertina fans it's kind of, they were quite cool for a while, I think. Maybe, I don't know, 1970s, that was before my time. And they used to go up on the wall. But, but as you open the fan, a picture develops as it unfolds. And you know, God wants us to, to understand that there's a, a picture that unfolds 
as he reveals his covenants that reveals something far better than this very poor picture of whoever you think it might be. Let's say Jesus. Looking quite buffed. But there's an unfolding that takes place. As we read the covenants, we see an unfolding and a gradual growing and understanding picture of who God is, the nature of God revealed in his covenants. God wants us to know him. He wants us to to begin to understand him. He wants us to to know that he's created us to not only in his image, but to know him and, and to be in relationship with him. And everything starts, all theology starts from God down. In everything that we've sung about, the goodness of God and God's covenant standing, I know that there are people standing in the midst of great challenges at the moment. But that doesn't change the truth of who God is. He's faithful. He rules. He reigns. And we trust him in that. And there's a protection for us in that. And so we don't look at God from the ground up. We look at him from heaven down. And we see what heaven has to say and we bring it to earth to understand what God is like and the nature of God. And, and all of these covenants that we read about, these seven covenants, build a picture and flood into, if you like, the new covenant. The first six flood in and are fulfilled by the seventh covenant, the new covenant that we'll consider today. And so if we go back in our Bibles to Genesis 1, feel free to pray for me during this sermon so that I do a really good job of uh, <laughs> pray and listen. But you can, oh, well, I'll ask the women to do that because they can multitask. Men, just listen. No. Just. <laughs> David talked last week about how, um, of, of, of the nature of covenant and, and that they're binding agreements between two parties. The <coughs> thing is, when God makes a covenant, a, a covenant with us, we, you know, he doesn't ask us what we think of the terms. He gives us the terms. Yeah. And then it's up to us to opt in or out. God isn't O2. You know, I, we can't argue God's sort of, we can't go for the, for the family package of, of what God's got because we don't want to go for the premium you know, like we're calling Sky and we want to negotiate with God. It's all or nothing with him. And when he sets out a covenant with us, we have to go for all of it and come in with all of it and say, God, it's, this is your rule. This is your kingdom. These are your, um, this, is, this is what you're bringing me into. So I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just going to listen and do whatever you say. And as we read through the covenants, we see aspects of, of God's nature and God's heart for us. And, and in the Edenic covenant, the covenant that was established in Eden, we read in this incredible account in Genesis 1 of the creation of the earth, the universe, of animals, creatures, humanity. But there's a statement that God says in Genesis 1.26. God said, and that word God in our Bibles is the word Elohim, which is plural, gods. But one God, the Godhead said, let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. God's intention was always that we will be like him. And what is God like? What do we see when we look at the Godhead? We see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We see a perfect community, a perfect family unit, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And we get glimpses throughout the Bible of how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit relate to one another. When Jesus came, he said, I have come only to do the will of the Father. There was a submission and a complete unity to God. And then when Jesus says, I will send one just like me, he sends the Holy Spirit who will guide us into truth. And in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, can you imagine any sort of rift happening in the Godhead? The Son taking umbrage with the Father? 
or the spirit having a chat with the son because they've got something negative to talk about about the father. You can't comprehend that. And God's heart is that we are just like him. That the relationships that we see expressed in heaven, those perfect covenantal relationships where love is expressed, where honor is expressed, where unity is expressed, where there's headship and submission, but and yet equality of value. God says, I want to see that expressed in men and women made in our image, just like us. God wants to create people that will be in relationship with him in a way that's perfect and unhindered and in relationship with one another, fruitful and blessed. And that's the context for the blessing of the covenant. He says, they're made in our image. They'll be in relationship with us in a perfect way. They'll be in relationship with one another. Sin won't be kind of mixing and messing things up and muddying the waters and bringing separation. In In the light of that, they'll be blessed. They'll be fruitful. They'll multiply. They'll fill the earth. They'll govern it. And the first thing I want to say about God is God is a God of relationship. If you ask people, why did God make us? People might say, well, to worship him, that's true. People might say, well, you know, maybe, maybe to boss some people around for a bit. Or maybe you just had a bit of spare time. No, God made us for relationship. The very heart and essence, a covenant relationship with him that's strong and perfect, that's loving and submitted and obedient. And God tested that relationship. All relationships are tested, aren't they? Anybody married? All relationships are tested, aren't they? There's a test in there. But in it all, the proof of the relationship is overcoming those tests and saying this is more important than anything else, than this disagreement, than this mistake, than this um, way of, of, of living or a different approach to life. We overcome all of those things because a covenantal relationship is far bigger and far greater. And in our relationship with God, that's how he wants us to relate to him to be like him and to be in relationship with him. And in the context of that, we can be blessed. God is a God of relationship. Number one, that's what we see about the the nature of God. He's a God of relationship. And you know what? God is a God of good relationships. Any relationship that you know that is dysfunctional does not represent the relationship that God has for you and him and for you and others. Everything that God made was good. He made it and he said, I don't just believe he said, oh, that's good. (laughs) Great. He said, that's so good. And then he made you and I, and he said, that's very good. That's that's quite amazing. God created us, and and so he's a God of relationship. He's a God of good relationships. And the God of relationship is a God of intimacy. I find it incredibly in some ways humbling that God, in a sense, knelt down in the dust, put his hands into the earth and formed man. And not only that, but then breathed his very breath into his nostrils to give him life. And then in creating the woman, once Adam realized that rhinos and hippos and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, had no place for him, God said, I'm going to make a helper. And he takes a rib out of his side, again with his hands, and creates Eve. God is a God of relationship, of good relationships, and of intimacy. God wants us to be intimate with him, and in the right way, he wants us to be intimate with one another. The tragedy is that mankind fell. And David talked last week about how the serpent came and asked the question, did God really say? Begins to question the word of God, and and David talked about how covenants are formed by words, 
and by blood being shed, and then by a seal, a sign to show that a covenant has been made. And in this context, the relationship between man and God was broken because they chose to disobey God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know what? God had every right in that situation to say, I'm done with you. And some people here might think God said that to you. He hasn't said that to you. God's not done with anyone in this room this morning. But God was well within his rights to say, I'm done with you. When I was in uh, junior school, I had a friend called Lee Williams. And uh, he was my best friend. But what happened was, if I ever started to talk to anybody else, or play football with anybody else, or swap my Panini football sticker cards with anybody else, he'd call me a sly off. I used to hate that phrase. Cut me to the heart. A sly off. What does that even mean? And I felt awful and out of guilt. I was like, I, 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 I sort of cut everybody else off just to please Lee. Looking back, it's like, what was I doing? But you know what? God doesn't, God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, well, you're a sly off. I'm having nothing to do with you until you grovel your way back. That's not how God works. You know what? There was nothing Adam and Eve could do about it. Only, the only person who could initiate... The repair of that relationship was God himself. And that's what we see in this second covenant, the covenant that God makes with Adam. God speaks judgment into the situation. And if you turn to Genesis 3, you see that the, end, the, the, the serpent is judged and he's cursed. God says, it's time for you to start crawling around on your belly in the dust. Men and women are judged and are told that it's hard labor for you both. For Adam, it's hard labor in the, in the, in the fields. And for Eve, it's hard labor in the delivery room. But in both cases, there's labor comes into the earth. They're expelled from the garden. There's a, an, an enmity between man and the woman, between the serpent and the man. And yet, even in that context, God brings about by his covenant the provision and the means by which he will restore everything and redeem everything. Genesis 15, uh, Genesis 3, 15, sorry. It says there'll be hostility between you and the woman, between you and your offspring and her offspring, bad relationships. But then he talks about how the enemy, the serpent, will strike your heel, but you will crush his head. And we see this motif of head crushing that begins to flow through our Bibles. In, Judges, uh, in, in, in Joshua Five, Joshua gets the kings of the south and he gets the people of Israel to put their feet on the necks and the heads of the kings of the south to say, the enemy is under your feet, you're going to crush his head. And then you get to Judges 5 and you've got this evil Sisera who's trying to, to attack God's people and in the tent of Jael, uh, an Israelite woman, she slams a tent peg in through the temple of his skull and crushes his head and kills him. And then you see the evil Abimelech attack a town later on in Judges. And a woman pushes a millstone over the top of a tower and it crushes his head. And he's like, oh no, I can't die at the hands of a woman. Someone run me through. And her head crushed kind of way. And then later on, Samson gets a jawbone of an ox and crushes a thousand Philistine skulls. We see this head crushing, head crushing, head crushing. But then if you read John, in John's Gospel, John 19, the hill that Jesus was crucified on was called what? Skull Hill, Golgotha. And in that final ultimate act of head crushing, the cross dropped into that skull 
and crushed the head of the enemy forever when Jesus died on the cross. Even then, thousands of years earlier, there's a prophetic statement of how the seed of the woman, how Jesus Christ would come and crush the head of the enemy. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He's a God of redemption. He's redeemed Adam and Eve. And not only that, but they sin and they realize that they're naked and they're shamed and they're guilty. Why? Because they disobey God. And God could easily have said, well, serves you right. He was well within his rights to do so. But that is not God's heart because he's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. An innocent animal is killed. The blood of an innocent animal is shed so that its skin can cover their shame. That first picture of blood being shed and a covering of sin, again, that represented the work of Jesus Christ later on. God is a God of redemption. That's what we see in this second covenant. Jacob says, God, you've delivered me from evil or disaster, Genesis 48, 16. Time and again, the people say God has redeemed us from slavery in Exodus 6, 6 and Deuteronomy 9, 26. David says God has redeemed me from all distress. Psalm 103, verse 4 says he's redeemed my life from the pit. He's a redeemer. We see this in the second covenant. He's a redeemer because he's loving. Says that my redeemer brings about loving kindness. That's what Hesed is. And he's living. Job 19.25 says, my redeemer lives. You know, he's alive today to redeem. To redeem us. He's a God of relationship. He's a God of redemption. He's a redeemer. And then in the third covenant of Noah, if you turn to Genesis 9, we see that God is a God of rescue. He's a rescuer. In 2 Peter 2.5, it describes the story of Noah, and it said that God preserved Noah. He rescued him through the flood. You know, there's something about God. When God makes a covenant with Noah, when he brings him through the flood, he sets a covenant with him. And it's a covenant that, is, that echoes back to Genesis 1, where he says, I'm going to make you fruitful. So if you turn to, to Genesis 9, verse 7, God says to Noah, you'll be fruitful and you'll multiply, and you'll repopulate the earth. Words that are echoed back from Genesis 1. They were to rule. Again, echoes back to Genesis 1. They were to take care of the world. They were now allowed to eat meat, and God gave the animals a fighting chance. He put fear in their hearts so that they would have a chance to, to leg it before Noah got his axe out. But there's something of preservation in there to preserve the wildlife, to preserve Nature, he said, I won't flood the earth again. To preserve life, God prohibits murder for the first time um, to, to his people, although he condemns um, Abel, uh, Cain for killing Abel. And we see something of God being a preserver and a rescuer. I want to say this about God. God is faithful and he's able and strong to rescue every one of us. Whatever we're facing, God is a rescuer. He delivers me from evil delivers me from all harm. In 2 Corinthians 1.10, Paul talks about all the dangers and trials that they face on their mission trips, but he says this, I know God will rescue us. I know God will preserve us. I know God will keep us. He's a covenant-making God. He's a rescuer. It's part of his nature. God is a God of relationship. God is a God of redemption. God is a rescuer. And fourthly, God is reliable. We come to the Abrahamic covenant. 
in Genesis 12. And when we read in Genesis 12, we see that God says to Abraham, I want you to be blessed so that you can keep it all to yourself. You can get fat and die old rich. No, I want you blessed so that you can be a blessing. What I, do, what I give to you in blessing is not for you to keep. It's for you to give away and bless others. And know this, as you do, I'll just keep pouring in the blessing. God is reliable. He's a God of relationship. He's a God of redemption. He's a rescuer. And he's reliable. He says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. And watch out those who cause you trouble and curse you. I'm going to make you into a great nation and a father of many nations. Literally changes his name from esteemed father, Abraham, to father of many nations, Abraham. And then in Genesis 15, we kind of see more expansion on the covenant. And in Genesis 17, we see that as well. And if you turn to Genesis 15, as God is making this covenant, he speaks very clearly to Abraham. And he gives him very specific things to do. He tells him about how his descendants will be like the stars in the sky. But then he goes on to say that um, well, firstly, this he asks him to, to, to slaughter five animals. Not just slaughter them, but literally cut them in half. One thing I know about Abraham is he had to, be, he had to learn how to be good with a knife. <laughs> and God graciously let him develop his skills on the animals before he had to take it closer to home. So he gets these animals. He says, get me a heifer, get me a ram, get me a goat, get me a turtle dove, and get me a pigeon. Abraham said, I don't know the difference between a turtle dove and a pigeon. God says, well, that's a turtle dove, that's a pigeon, thanks. And he says, slice them in half, and you walk through that guts-covered, blood-soaked, slippery, awful flooring thing. And he walks through this to show that, God, I'm in a covenant with you. And then God causes Abraham to go into a sleep. And then Abraham, in his sleep, God speaks to him and he says, your descendants will be in prison for 400 years. They'll be enslaved. But I want you to know this. I'll deliver them. He's reliable. I promise I will deliver them. They may face slavery, but I will deliver them. And then Abraham wakes and God shows that he will keep his covenant. How does God show that he's walking through this this same mucky mess that Abraham walked through? It's like a scene from Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. I don't know if anybody's ever seen this film. But a flaming torch and a pot that's smoking from the fire work their way through these halved animals. It's incredible that God proves to Abraham that he's a God of covenant. But he wants him to know, you can rely on me, Abraham. I'm going to keep you. The smoke and the fire go through these halved bodies. And I want to say this about God being reliable. He is generous. When God says to Abraham about the covenant, it's a great covenant. He's a generous God. I'm going to richly, abundantly bless you. In fact, the land I'm going to give you is awesome. It's got everything going for it. All the seasons, all the animals, all the creatures. It's, it's beautiful. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's wonderful. He's generous and he's faithful. He says, you can trust me for generation after generation after generation. And Abraham is asked, is told to seal the covenant by cutting his own flesh by circumcision but in it God is saying I'm setting you apart Abraham to be different you know God is a reliable God 
And you know, we see the proof then of God's reliability throughout Genesis and into Exodus. We see that God does indeed bless Abraham and Sarah with a child in their old age. We see that Isaac, was it easy for Isaac and uh, Rebekah to conceive? No. Was it easy for Jacob and Rachel to conceive? No. Were God's promises any less true? No. But we see those things challenged, but time and again, they relied on God. They say, I'm holding on to your promises. I'm going to trust you. And God made him, just as he said, a great nation. And while they were in Egypt, they blessed Egypt. And Egypt blessed them. And then finally, Egypt turned on them and enslaved them. And as a result, because they cursed God's people, God sent the plagues onto Egypt to deliver them out, just as he promised he'd do to Abraham. Every covenant builds one upon another. And then when we come to this fifth covenant, the covenant of the law, we see that God is righteous. But in the way that he delivers his people, he fulfills the covenants. He shows that he's a God of covenant in everything that he does. When he calls Moses, what does Moses say to God? He says, God, I I can't do it. I don't even know your name. And God says, this is my name. I am. Always. I am Yahweh. He introduces himself to Moses in a way that no one had met with God before. God is a God of relationship. He fulfilled his covenant of a relationship-making God. And then he says to Moses, he brings the plagues, and how does God redeem his people? How are they saved from the angel of death? A lamb is killed and the blood is painted on the doorposts, and they're redeemed from death and judgment because of the work of the blood of the lamb. And then they're brought to the Red Sea. And how does God rescue them? He rescues them through the flood in the same way that he'd done with Noah, a rescuing God. He delivers them from their enemies and they're washed away in the flood of the Red Sea. And then he brings them out into the wilderness and he's testing them. He says, are you willing to rely on me? And he leads them through the wilderness. How? With a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. In the same way that he'd walked through those carcasses of the animals with Abraham, improving his covenant, that's exactly how God led his people through the wilderness to the place that he promised. These covenants building, one picture upon another, revealing that he's a covenant-making God, a covenant-keeping God, a God of relationship, a God who's a redeemer, a God who's a rescuer, a God who's reliable, and a God who's righteous. And when we come to the law and the, and the, the covenant that he makes with, with Moses, that's what we find in Exodus 20 to 40 and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all these descriptions of the law. Why did God bring the covenant of the law in? Because he wanted them to understand his nature, that he's pure and holy and set apart, that he's a righteous God. But not only that, because he wanted them to also be holy as he is holy. To reveal him. Has anybody ever been in a job where you've asked someone to represent you in any, maybe in a a context of a meeting or a a classroom or or somebody goes and you have to represent you? It's a scary thing to trust someone to represent you your heart, your thoughts, anything about you. Or you go overseas and people that have gone ahead of you are the same nationality of you and in a sense they've represented you. Brits abroad. It's a scary thing to be right, but God's heart was, I want you, my people, to represent me perfectly in the earth. I'm righteous. I want you to reveal my righteousness. And so God sets for them a clean diet 
certain things they can and can't eat. Not because God's a fussy eater, because he wanted them to be clean and what they took into their bodies. He was interested in mildew in their homes. He wanted their homes clean. He was interested in the stuff in their garments and their clothes. He wanted them to wear clean clothes. He was interested in how they related to one another. He wanted clean relationships. He wanted them to represent him perfectly, that he's a righteous, holy God, to reveal sin. That's what the law did. It shone a light into every life. And wherever there was sin, it was exposed. Why? So God could have a go, no, so they could repent and put it right. And the means of doing it, again, was by sacrifice. God is a righteous God. Can everybody say relationship? Can everybody say redeem? Rescuer. He's reliable. He's righteous. And lastly, he's a ruling God. He's a God of rule. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, God would, had always planned to set a king in place. And uh, even in Genesis 17, God says to Abraham in his promises of his being blessed and being fruitful, he says, there'll even be kings named among you. What kings? <laughs> Incredible kings. In Deuteronomy 17, when God gives the law to Moses in that covenant of the law, he's, he sets in rules for kings in Deuteronomy 17. They hadn't even had a king yet. So he told Abraham about it 2000 BC. He told Moses about it 1500 BC. And there wasn't a king until 1000 BC. But God is a God of covenant and time is irrelevant. All of his covenants are everlasting. And they flow one into another. And we see in the Davidic covenant a representation of God's rule in the earth. And in 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to plant you in the land. I'm going to give you victory over your enemies. You're going to have a family line that will rule. It's interesting that God tested his people in the wilderness, tested their faith and their obedience, and they failed, and so they wandered for 40 years. And God tested them in their desire for a king, and they went too early, and they chose Saul, and they suffered with a bad king for how long? 40 years. It's a generational thing. Can't short-circuit God's purposes. But God is a God of rule, and he establishes his covenant with David. And we see in this that God reigns forever. He's victorious forever. His increase of his government and peace continues forever. And not only that, but he wants us to reign with him. That's God's heart for us. You know, in all of these covenants, the covenant in Eden, Adam and Eve fell. And then the covenant that he set with Adam, Cain and Abel, there was murder, there was sin that filled the earth, polluted the earth to the point where God had to establish Noah's covenant to flood the earth and he sets a covenant with him. But Noah's sons lost the plot, broke covenant. Abraham's family that God set with Abraham, they broke the covenant. Moses and God's people, time and again, they broke the law. They broke covenant. David and his family, even Solomon, started to go off course, broke covenant. And yet, God chooses never to let go of his covenant. He's faithful. Completely and utterly faithful. And we come into the fullness of the new covenant why did all of these people fall? Why did all of these covenants on behalf of men fail and break and crash? Because as David said last week, the heart of the problem 
was the problem of the heart. But if you turn to Jeremiah 31, please, just in closing. See, a covenant established in Eden was to set about relationship that was broken, but God redeemed in Adam. That was broken, but God continued that true covenant of relationship by saving Noah and rescuing him. Proved himself to be reliable to Abraham. Showed himself to be righteous to his people, Israel. Established his rule and showed that he's a ruling God through David. But every time it failed, every time the heart wasn't right, and that's because all of it was leading into this. Jeremiah 31 31. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made when their with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. Speaking of covenant again, marriage. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the new covenant that God makes. He changes our hearts. And you know what? Jesus, in establishing the new covenant, shows to us that God is a God who relates to us. It says that he dwelled with us. It says that he took human form and dwelt with us, tabernacled with us. John 15 says, he says, if you remain in me, I'll remain in you. He proves to us in the new covenant that God is a God of relationship. Jesus came to redeem us. Galatians 3.13 says that he redeemed my life. He's redeemed us, bought us with a price. He's loving and he's living. He's a rescuer. Colossians 3 Colossians 1.13 says, He's rescued or delivered me from darkness, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is reliable. Philippians 3, Paul writes and he says, It's not about what I've done or haven't done. It's about faith in Jesus and relying in Him that puts me right with God. 2 Corinthians 1.20-24 talks about how everything, all God's promises are yes and Amen. In Jesus Christ, he's reliable. He's righteous. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. And in Galatians 3, it talks about how Jesus was perfect and righteous. And he's our ruler and our redeemer. Revelation 19, 11 talks about the rider on the white horse wearing many crowns. We see all of these covenants fulfilled in Christ Jesus as he brings us into the new covenant to change our hearts to cause us to desire to please God, to live in that relationship that God had established, but not just with him, with one another. The truth of the new covenant is that all of these covenants are fulfilled in it. In, it envelops all of them. They all lead into it. They, they're not obsolete. They reveal something of God's heart and God's nature to us, but they also reveal to us how we are to live we're to live in right relationship with God and one another. God is a God of relationship. He wants us to have right relationships. He wants us to know that we're redeemed. 
If Benj Lyon is redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, he has an inherent value that is great. And I will belittle that by treating him any differently than honoring him and loving him and wanting the best for him in a covenantal relationship. That's what relationship is about. That's what redemption is about. God wants us at times to rescue one another. Talks in Galatians, he says, if you see one of you falling, you go and you help him up. God wants us to rely on him, but he wants us to rely on one another. Because the body is built together, supporting one another with every supporting limit. That's the new covenant that we've been brought into. God wants us to be righteous in the way that we are with him by putting our faith in Jesus, but he wants our relationships with one another to be righteous. God wants his rule to be seen in our lives so that the kingdom comes in my life, but it comes in this community and we extend his rule into the earth. And God wants all of it to lead to this. This is what the new covenant was all about. Restoration. The restoration of all things. The earth is desperate. The world is desperate to encounter the restoration of God. To see the outworking of the new covenant. To see the God of the covenants of the Old Testament fulfilled in its fullness in the new covenant in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. That's God's heart for us. And this morning I just would like to say, well it's almost still morning, it's just gone into the afternoon. If you're here this morning and you've not yet known a relationship with God, it comes through a faith in Jesus Christ. And I will love to pray for you in just a few minutes to allow you to come into a relationship with God that's based on the new covenant of what Jesus has done. You know what? The animals, the blood and the sacrifice of animals have been completely put away because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. He died for us. And the seal, the sign of the covenant, isn't a tree or even a rainbow. It's something far greater. It's the person of the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, to keep us, to empower us, to live the Christian life. That's God's heart for us, that we live in the fullness of the new covenant that he's brought us into. Can we just pray together for a moment? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you're a faithful God. That what you say you'll do, you'll do. That your promises are unwavering and unchanging. That your mind doesn't change, but you're consistent and you're constant and you're faithful. Lord, your desire to be in relationship with us has never changed. Even in spite of how we've behaved at times, your desire for a relationship has never wavered. Your hesed, Lord, strong and powerful. And Lord, I pray that each one of us this morning will know the love that you have for us today. That Holy Spirit, that you reveal the love of God to us this morning in a fresh way. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your Son to die for us, that we might be redeemed. Thank you that you've rescued us from sin and death and separation and brought us back into relationship with you. Thank you that we can rely on your promises. Thank you that you're a God of righteousness and rule.
And Lord, our prayer is, let your righteousness be evident in our lives. Let our lives line up, Lord, with your will. Let your rule be extended through us, we pray, as it's outworked in our own lives first. And Lord, let us be instruments of restoration in this world around us to bring about, Lord, in the lives of others, a restoration of relationship with you. Father, I pray for each person here right now. Holy Spirit, minister everything that's needed at this time, I pray. Let strength come where it's needed. Let health flow where it's needed. Let life come where it's needed. I pray for a fresh zeal and passion for you and your kingdom, Lord, where it's needed. A waking up and a shaking up and a dusting off where we've lain dormant for too long. And instead, a fire that burns in our hearts for you. Because, Lord, you deserve nothing less than lives that burn passionately for you. And Lord, let this world be turned upside down by your people living in the fullness of the incredible covenant that you've established with us. Cause us to understand this even more over these coming days and weeks ahead, we pray, as we read your word and we consider your covenant together, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. You're so good. Bless each person here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. For more information about Living Rock Church and for more great teaching, please visit www.livingrockchurch.org.uk. 